This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. It is just a matter of putting your phone down at the end of the day and just absorbing and really taking the time to look and to just feel what's going on. That's one of the things I've learned in Paris is really taking the time to really being loyal to those moments of exposure to the everyday things. This is The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. You know, instead of just looking at a pigeon like, get out of my way, I look at it for how it walks, how it moves its head, how it blinks its eyes. It's kind of a whole new way of looking at things. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Have you ever had a culinary experience, one so great, so mind-blowing, so memorable, that the food deserved to be immortalized in a unique way. Because it wasn't all about the lighting or the composition. It was truly all about the food itself and how it engaged all of your senses. This is how I felt one evening in May, back in 2011. My sister Lee and I were on an epic road trip with our cousin George, who was in his mid-70s at the time. George asked us to accompany him on this journey from his home in London to Tuscany and back. His wife, Betsy, wasn't available, and time was of the essence. George had kidney issues, and his knee was bad, and driving wouldn't be an option for long. But for George, there wasn't any other way. He loved his Michelin Guide, a book designed to steer drivers towards the best restaurants, the best tiny villages, the best vineyards. Would we like to come with him this one last time? And could we travel lightly? He needed space in the back for all the wine he'd be buying along the way. So my sister and I somehow left our little kids and husbands behind and traveled with George just for the fun of it. We meandered in his aging wagon from London to Rheims to Bonn to Pistoia to Leckie to Montecatini Terme and back to London. We spent a few extra days in Tuscany. What else is one to do when the wagon breaks down? Yes, we had to be rescued from the side of the autostrada by Federico, the tow truck driver in skinny jeans and a pop collar. He hauled George's car onto the flatbed with George still behind the wheel, my sister beside him, me in the back seat. An illegal move in North America, I'm pretty sure. So George, seated behind the wheel, immediately pulled out his faithful Michelin guide. We'd need to know where to eat that night, after all. But it was before the breakdown that this culinary moment happened. We were east of Milan on the long route to Tuscany, not yet broken by a breakdown. George had booked us into Le Calandre, a Michelin-starred restaurant in what looked like an industrial park. But we pulled in with full faith. We love hidden secrets. The restaurant itself was contemporary and minimal in my memory. More Milan Fashion Week than Italian grandmother. Dishes came out one after the next on plates handmade to suit the ingredients. Waiters wore leather Ferrari aprons. The whole evening was a revelation of textures and tastes and flavors. A squid ink cappuccino. The creamiest saffron risotto soft raw meat with black truffle, conical strawberries coated in vanilla essence. It was show-stopping. But it wasn't until the end, when the chef's interpretation of cannoli, typically a hollow, deep-fried tube of pastry filled with sweet cream, 
arrived in flat, lasagna-like squares, topped with perfect little pillows of cream. It was simple compared to the other dishes. But then we heard it talking to us. The pastry layers were snapping and crackling and popping. The fireworks continued in the mouth, just like Pop Rocks I used to love as a kid. Then the bite just melted on the tongue. George passed away last fall, but we spoke about that trip until the end. The highs, the lows, the stories told on the long stretches of motorways, and that explosive dessert before the car broke down. I picture an animation with fireworks exploding off the pastry, something a photograph just can't capture. Today on The Food Podcast, we talk with Jesse Canellos-Weiner, an illustrator, a watercolorist, an author, a long-term American in Paris, a food stylist, and a food lover. We talk about life in Paris, its beauty, its challenges, and how finding a voice as an artist using a touch of animation allowed her to celebrate the everyday and find value in the familiar. It's a walk through Paris with stops to regard a pigeon, to buy a camembert, and to pull up a lawn chair at Jesse's studio today on the Food Podcast. The YouTube video to promote Jesse's new book, Paris in Stride, an insider's walking guide, begins with feet dressed in little blue flats, painted in watercolor, walking along, passing Parisian spots we all want to pass, plus the insider locations. Hidden gardens, magical fountains, the best coffee, the perfect ice cream cone. It's a treasure map of sorts, illustrated by Jessie, who's lived in Paris for 10 years, and written by her friend and Paris-based journalist, Sarah Moraz. The part that's so magical is the movement here, these little blue shoes walking, inviting you to come along, a moving watercolor. It's traditional, and it's whimsical, delightful, but also simple. And I've worked long enough in a creative job to know that simple never means easy. Jessie describes herself as... An illustrator, specifically a watercolorist. I'm an author, I'm a long-term American in Paris, and a food stylist, and a food lover. But like all good stories, Jessie's twists and turns a little. She came to Paris soon after graduating from college to work as an au pair, she was looking for a cultural experience, something to fuel her education in costume design and her love of food. But... My host family was completely opposite of that. We, they never bought baguette. We ate spaghetti with canned sauce pretty much every day. So it was a, a big disappointment for me. So instead, her story became... Just about moving to France and trying to make it work and hustling and finding a way to bring your own perspective to create something special. So that hustling she mentioned. She worked as a food stylist, then was commissioned to write cookbooks. She's written 10 now, but all the while illustrating on the side. She married a Frenchman who's an architectural photographer and began a blog, The Franco Fly, an illustrated journey of an American in Paris. Eventually her work as an artist, which was her side hustle, 
took over from the styling and the cookbook writing, and et voila, she's now a full-time artist, with clients like Vogue, Serious Eats, Cherry Bomb magazine, an artist who walks home from her studio after work every day, a walk that takes about an hour, and leads her through a forest on the edge of Paris. She loves it because... Those are the moments where I repeat things that happen in the day in my head. I, I go through conversations. I really think through my day. And that's usually where ideas come to me as well. So it's kind of one good walk to the day. And then from there, it's uh, a moment to really catch up with my inner thoughts while also capturing the visuals of the day. I'm also a walker. It's when I catch up on my inner thoughts. Because when we go out for a walk, we're really going in. Those are the words from John Muir, the 19th century Scottish-American naturalist, the man responsible for many of the national parks in the United States. Muir wrote about how we lose the feeling of being alive when we work too much, when we focus on making money instead of doing what brings us joy. His full quote is, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown, for going out, I found, was really going in. That's the magic of walking. We take in the world while simultaneously going inside ourselves, quietly sorting things out. I pressed Jessie on what happens when she walks. I knew a woman who illustrated a walking tour of Paris had something to say about this. It is just a matter of putting your phone down at the end of the day and just absorbing and really taking the time to look and to just feel what's going on. There's certain energy to Paris. Paris is a very walkable city, too, that I think a lot of people don't recognize, that you can walk from one end to the other in about an hour and a half. So you can take the metro, which is a great experience, but walking really connects the dots and you understand how the the streets are formatted in a very old world kind of way. I think it's like any city, you just have to spend the time and commit to being an open book. Put down your phone. Be open. These words resonated with me, especially the first part. A few months ago, my mother-in-law told me, quite frankly, that I should put my phone away more often. I was setting a bad example for my kids when I constantly checked whatever it was I was checking. Ouch. I have shared in the past that my mother-in-law's maiden name is Blunt, (laughs) but she was right. How can I be present, see what's going on around me, be open, especially in the presence of others, when I'm on my phone? What would John Muir say? There's also something to the simplicity of a walk home from work, the same walk every day, noticing the ebb and flow of a city, seeing the same people, the same buildings in my own city, then noticing how they change just a little each day. Croissants, for example, they are always the same, but they're a Parisian staple each and every day. I asked Jessie if in Paris, with all its culinary stereotypes, does life become a cliché? Or is there beauty in the repetition? Sometimes it's a matter of looking at things that you might brush off as being (laughs) banal or everyday. Even seeing, you know, pigeons eating food and flying in is kind of emotional and a weird one. Maybe you shouldn't include this, but it is just about what makes every day special in some ways. I think that's one, one of the things I've learned in Paris is really taking the time to enjoy the moment and understand different neighborhoods in a certain way and 
really being loyal to those moments of exposure to the everyday things. Even something like going to my market, I go to the same market probably two, three times a week in my neighborhood, and it, it really is a sensory overload of lots of neighborhood friends, of I catch up on local gossip, I catch up on the seasons as well, but uh, if you don't take the time to go to that same place all the time, you, you don't get the same experience. Loyalty to the everyday. This loyalty plays out in what she paints. A quick scroll through her Instagram feed or her blog, you'll see seasonal produce celebrated. A dancing eggplant, the staples of a French refrigerator, butter, a pastry from Pierre Hermé, fresh market berries, fish, a fried egg, and of course a croissant and a pigeon perched on a chair, perhaps those outside the Louvre. This is what life is in Europe, savoring the everyday, the simplest things. How are we supposed to really see these things, stop, taste, enjoy, if we're on our phone? Does the same philosophy apply to her art? When she's painting these Parisian staples again and again, does repetition allow Jessie to discover something different every time? For sure. And the thing with watercolor too is there's an element of chance, which is kind of like walking in some way, where my technique isn't that tight where I can do exactly what I want, but sometimes the water and the paper has a way of taking it to a whole other level. So there is an element of chance to, to both. That's not too far out there. When I make the same recipe on repeat, a similar magic happens. I can't control all the variables, the mood in the kitchen, the kids and their needs, the subtle nuances when I have to substitute an ingredient. Tuesdays are for tacos, but every week they are slightly different. Or with my writing, every week I send out a newsletter. There's structure in that, repetition in the discipline, but I found there's space for creativity to flow within the boundaries of the schedule. The things you learn when you show up and commit again and again. So what's Jessie's schedule? What's the structure behind all of this creation? What does an artist's day look like? Well, I wake up probably at around, I always set my alarm for 7, but I end up getting out of bed at around 8, 8.30. I'm not really a morning person, but I'm trying really hard to be one. I usually go to the market if it's a market day, and I drink green tea, and then I walk to my studio. I have coffee at my studio, so that's the reward. I try to knock out some emails in the morning just to clear my day and have some headspace. I work a lot with U.S. clients and French clients, so I usually work with the French clients in the morning before the, the U.S. clients start waking up. And I have a, an artist studio where I usually have lunch with the other artists, so everyone brings a salad or something like that, and it's really kind of cool moment. Just a second. An artist potluck every day? Sounds amazing. Yeah, totally. At the beginning, I just brought my own little salad or soup, but it's really kind of a cool moment where everyone drinks something pretty extraordinary. And then from there, I just continue my day. Sometimes I have appointments in Paris with friends or collaborators. And I usually walk home at around seven or eight, so it's a pretty long day, but I really like working. I usually get a second wind at around 5 p.m., which can be potentially dangerous because I could easily work until 10 p.m. every night. But it's just what works for me. Sometimes I'll, I'll start later, too, if I had a busy day the day before. But I really like that studio time to concentrate and do what I need to do. Jessie broke away from this rhythm while on her book tour through the States for Paris in Stride. To mix things up a little, instead of doing typical author meet-and-greets, she hosted watercolor classes— she would set her students up with watercolor paper, paints, and place a little still life of fresh vegetables, something inspired from Edible Paradise, the coloring book Jessie published. 
My mother is a watercolor artist. I grew up coming home every Thursday at noon to women sitting around our dining room table, fixated on a platter of Concord grapes harvested from our backyard, or whatever other interesting story they could conceive from what was available. I wished I had been at one of those watercolor class signings. I asked Jesse to pretend I was there. So, I have a few sheets of watercolor paper in front of me, and there's... A beautiful spring, still life. A bunch of radishes. We'd have some stalks of asparagus and some beautiful French strawberries and a few impossible things like a skeleton, some empty wine bottles that are filled with other things. Okay, no problem. I imagine a bunch of radishes, green leaves are fresh and crisp, draped the base of the skeleton. The asparagus spears are standing tall, leaning against a wine bottle for height. Strawberries are scattered around. Perhaps a few strawberry flowers are in there too. Maybe even a butterfly. It's all very Jamie back of Ann Street Studio. Okay, I have to focus. First, I'd walk you through some drawing exercises. I'd give you five seconds to capture everything you see in front of you, and then 10 seconds where the composition has to fill the whole page, so you have to touch all four corners of the paper. And then I would push you right into watercolor. I'd give you maybe two minutes to cover the whole surface of the paper with watercolor. And then go into longer poses. Uh, I'd encourage you to think about complementary colors. Color is super important in what I do. And so I would explain the color wheel. And if you want to make an orange that's less orange, you add the opposite side of the color wheel. So you'd add a little bit of blue. I don't know if you're watching the new Queer Eye, but my example is the green stick. So if you have redness on your skin, you add a little bit of green and that counteracts the redness. Oh, yes. Queer Eye, the new Netflix original where a team of talented gay men A designer, a stylist, a makeup specialist, a life coach, and a cook. It's one of my favorite shows. Give a man a full life makeover. On episode one, the makeup specialist uses a green stick to counterbalance rosacea. Who knew that would work? And I would talk about shadow. I feel like a lot of beginners don't understand the weight of what's in front of you. So I encourage you to really look at the shadows and the darkest points of the composition and add some black or some heavy shadows. And that's about it in a nutshell. It seems straightforward, I suppose, but this means I, the student, must put down my phone, focus, and really see what is in front of me the familiar things and the less familiar. I've never drawn a skeleton before. A few Septembers ago, I was helping my parents shut down their cottage for the winter. At one point, when I was supposed to be washing windows in my late grand's bedroom, I noticed a book I had never noticed before, Photography and the Art of Seeing by Canadian photographer Freeman Patterson. My grand was an oil painter, a gardener and a reader, not a photographer. But the passages she underlined throughout the book tell me she was using photography skills to teach her, as a painter, the difference between looking and seeing. She underlined a lot of the book in pencil, writing painter wherever the word photographer was written. But she had drawn a star beside this passage. A photographer who wants to see, a photographer who wants to make fine images, must recognize the value in the familiar. Didn't Jesse say earlier that the secret to being an artist in Paris is... A matter of looking at things that you might brush off as being (laughs) banal or everyday. This is also underlined in the book. 
Seeing, in the finest and broadest sense, means using your senses, your intellect, and your emotions. It means encountering your subject matter with your whole being. Good seeing doesn't ensure good photographs or paintings, added my grandmother, but good photographic expression is impossible without it. The chef at Le Calandre in Italy forced us to use all of our senses when he served an audible dessert full of different textures and flavors. All our senses were engaged and tuned in. Jessie has a post on her blog, The Francofly, called How to Be an Illustrator. There are her pearls of wisdom in there, all featuring her signature watercolor images with a touch of animation. A watercolor brush sweeps across the screen, magically adding detail to her lettering. Snowflakes fall inside a snow globe. A set of scales teeter with the weight of celebration food and work. These are all visuals that bring to life her tips on how to be an illustrator. It's so engaging, it pulls you in. I ask about her process behind bringing movement into something that is typically a still life. So about three, four years ago, I noticed some animated images in the New York Times and lots of different online sites. And so I thought to myself, you know, it'd be really cool to do something with watercolor because a lot of these animations are very digitized in some way. So I thought with my style, which is a very old world paper method, it would be really cool to experiment with that. So I taught myself. It took a long time to really fine tune everything. I remember I was on vacation and I did my first one and it took like eight hours and it wasn't even very good. So it's like everything, it just takes time. And eventually I was able to market that work and share it and then get clients little by little, which has been a really great source of work. And uh, when you're taking it into a new dimension too, it's really nice because it's not just the static image, but you can say something on top of that as well with the movement. Speaking of looking at things too, it's really changed my regard for how things move. You know, instead of just looking at a pigeon like, get out of my way, I look at it for how it walks, how it moves its head, how it blinks its eyes. It's kind of a whole new way of looking at things. Point number two of her post is called, How to Find Your Voice Close to Home. It begins with, where do I start? I'd say just look around you. When I moved to Paris indefinitely, I already knew how to draw more or less, but was still stumped about what to draw. But being vulnerable in a new surrounding meant I was constantly drafting stories in my head about being an expat, like, hello, phone book of paperwork, and finding my place in an often bizarre country, thinking, why was the cheese platter the only thing that spoke to me at French house parties, and adopting daily French customs into my regular life, French breakfast, American waistline. I think that putting story with a visual was the ultimate catalyst for creating engaging illustrations and a selling point when contacting art directors. This is practical information, but she's also throwing out a lifeline to anyone living in a big city who feels lonely, who knows the feeling of talking to a cheese plate at a house party. It's not just Jessie's delightful animations that connect her to people. It's her honesty and vulnerability. It's incredible how she's figured out how to tell the truth in a little painting. When I started my blog about six or seven years ago, I had these little stories in my head, but I I needed a visual to reinforce that and to draw people in. So I, I feel like there is always a little bit of a narrative behind what I do in some way or some kind of truth to share or some kind of discomfort most of the time. So that's how I frame my angle and my work. And I, I think that's how I found my voice too. In episode 25, I share a little bit about feeling lonely while living in London, a city full of people, flowing with purpose, 
A city that doesn't really have room for you. So the trick is to stick out your elbows and make a space for yourself. It's hard, but there's nothing like a little adversity to push creativity. This is when we find our voice. In an interview with the New York Times, Jessie said that one of her favorite and inexpensive things to do when friends are visiting Paris is to take them walking along the Seine. She makes a salad, perhaps buys a baguette, picks up some cheese and a bottle of wine, and they find a spot to have a picnic. This wasn't always her way. For a while, I had a group of really good friends who are all cookbook authors, so we would create very competitive picnics and uh, lots of really fun stuff. But usually I'll do a salad and pick up some cheeses and a good bottle of wine. Simple is always better, I find. Oh, yes, savoring the simple. It's like how a chef can take a square of pastry, sugar and cream, very familiar ingredients, and somehow make them explosively extraordinary. Jesse, thank you for sharing your story and walking us through your creative process. Someday, hopefully, we'll share some wine and cheese along the same. You can find Jesse's blog at thefrankofly.com or at jessiecanaloswiner.com. Paris and Stride is published by Rizali. Look for it in your favorite bookshop. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Lindsay Cameron Wilson or at The Food Podcast. And please sign up for my newsletter where I'll keep you up to date on podcast news, share backstories from the episodes, and sometimes there are recipes in there too. You can sign up at lindsaycameronwilson.ca. You can also find the show notes to each episode there. And as always, thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song, One More Night. And Jen, congratulations for winning an East Coast Music Award for your album, Paradise. And let's celebrate three new podcasts that just were launched by some of my favorite women. Beth Kirby, or Local Milk, of Episode 10, launched Raw Milk, the creative business podcast. Jillian Bell and Annabelle Hickson, two Australian friends, launched Dispatch to a Friend, where they read letters, hilarious and honest, to each other. And my friend Victoria Turner launched Your Power Tribe podcast. All are available on iTunes. Congratulations, ladies. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 